tiny in all that air. The Philip Larkin Society Podcast. Hello and welcome to Tiny in All That Air, the Philip Larkin Society podcast. My name is Lynn Lockwood and I'm a trustee for the Philip Larkin Society. So this month I'm joined by two committee members who have been on the podcast before and I'm very pleased to welcome them back. Philip Pullen is a Larkin researcher and the chair of Larkin 100 and Rachel Gallatly is a, a trustee who runs our merchandise and does a lot of work on our uh, society events. The theme that links all the discussion together are the poems that Larkin wrote that were addressed to specific people, such as his mother, Eva Larkin, lifelong friend, novelist Kingsley Amis, and girlfriend, Winifred Arnott. Thank you to Rachel for suggesting this idea for a podcast. I lost count of how many poems we covered, but it was definitely over 20. Some in depth, some just in passing. Please enjoy. these poems are illuminated when you know a little bit about his background Definitely, and his yeah. life and where he was at the time. And I know yeah. some people um, resist that a little bit and don't like those kind of biographical readings of poems. Yeah. But, um, you know, and you don't have to. You don't no. have to know about King's Yamis to enjoy that poem. No. But it, I think it adds something. Definitely adds something. There are some things you just don't, you wouldn't know about the poems unless you knew the biography, or not just, actually, it's not the biography, it's less, less you knew the bits that are hidden, in a way, that are not out in the public, um, which is the thing with Eva, because mostly we don't know about Eva, because the biographies have never dealt with her properly, and so on, and there are things that are in letters that haven't been published before, so, yeah, yeah I mean, you don't have to, as you said, you, do, you, you, can, you can obviously appreciate the poem without any of that, and probably it's more so that it's not in there, but it does give another kind of angle on it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, do you want to start then, Phil, with um, yeah? Which which of the Eva poems did you want to start with? Well, I mean, if you if you take it, if you if you look at the context of it all, there are three poems that are definitely mother poems. I mean, the ones that are identified as mother poems, and those are Mother Samurai, Love Songs in Age, and Reference Back, and they're all definitely we know they're all about Eva because. Basically, Larkin's told us that in some of the correspondence, for example, is referred to to them as being about Eva to her, really. Yeah. But there are but there are other ones which have got elements of uh, of Eva in them. Hospital visits is one of them, which is actually, if you, you probably could say, it's a parental poem because it's about Eva and Sydney. Heads in the women's room is another one, which is it's not aimed at a person, but it you know it's influenced by Eva. Is it? I, that's yeah. one that's always I found really puzzling. Which one's that? Heads, Heads in the, in the women's, women's room. room. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty certain it is about the experiences he's had with with Eva because it real it, it clearly relates to a you know like a hospital setting, and it's also a geriatric hospital setting. And Larkin saw quite quite a lot of that. And I suppose I, why I think that one is about Eva is because it was written in 1972 which was the time that Eva 
went firstly into hospital because she fell at home and um, cracked her hip, I think. She Mm. ended up in Leicester Royal Infirmary for a few days and then she ended up in a nursing home where she stayed. She never went home after that. So he would have had plenty of opportunities to experience, you know, that aspect of being in hospital when you're old and that's what that poem is, you know, talks about. Yeah. Um, so I, do, I think it is. I actually think also that the, the old falls, which you wouldn't necessarily say, you know, is certainly not aimed at one person. But mm. again, the experience, yeah, that was... That, that that was published anyway in 1973. So it's the period of time when he was visiting Eva in the nursing home very regularly. And when you look at the letters that she wrote back to him from there, it was clear that her own sense of who she was and where she was and what she was going through was, um, you know, was reflective of some of the things in in the old fools so so yeah. those are the others but they're not specifically those aren't really the mother poems but i wanted to start with um hospital visits and I, I suppose what i wanted to to say about this is yeah there's always a, there's this kind of danger that you treat poems too biographically and uh, and especially with larkin you know where there's always a danger in assuming that he literally means something about himself mm. when he's mm. writing, you know, and people mm. are warned about that. But I think there are some cases where, A, we can definitely recognise that there are biographical elements in in the poems, and B, if we know something about the biography, if we know what he was doing at the time or what lay behind the reason why he put this particular image in or this, even use this word in some cases... You actually understand it better if you if you know a few more things about what what was going on at the time. Mm. And I, I wanted to start with hospital visits, which isn't really probably a very well known poem, and it's not one of his best poems, really. It's it was unpublished, and it obviously it's in the Thwaite edition, but it was unpublished. Um, he wrote it in December nineteen fifty three, but it actually. It's about um, an event that took place in 1948, which was when his father, Sidney, died in hospital, died in March 1948. And and it's a, it's about that period of time, and it's about um, Eva, Eva Larkin, and her visits to him. Um, shall I read the poem and then just explain yeah. a bit of the biography yeah. to it then? That'd be great, yeah. So this is, this is um, Hospital Visits. At length to hospital this man was limited, where screens leant on the wall and idle headphones hung. Since he would soon be dead, they let his wife come along and pour out tea each day. I don't know what was said, just hospital talk, as the bed was a hospital bed. Then one day she fell outside on the sad walk, and her wrist broke, curable at outpatients, naturally. Thereafter, night and day, she came both for the sight of his slowing down body and for her own attending. And there, by day and night, with her blithe bone mending, watched him in decay. Winter had nearly ended when he died. The screen was for that. To make sure her wrist mended, they had her in again to finish a raffia mat. This meant, since it was begun weeks back, he died again as she came away. And I, that, that poem, I mean, to really fully understand what was going on there, the biography is quite important because uh, Sydney was taken into Warwick Hospital 
I think over New Year in December 1947 into 1948. Uh, and he, he stayed there till he died. Eva would go and visit him every day. And Philip would, would visit him at weekends because he was living and working in Leicester and he came over the weekends. Um, but there were just one or two things in there that um, showed me what was going on in a way because I'd, I'd read I'd read all the letters and postcards that were sent to and from um, Philip Larkin and his mother at the time when Sydney was in hospital and the ones indeed he sent to Sydney. And she broke her wrist, I think, early in either... It was in January or February, which stopped her going in every day. But it was the line. Well, the line that sort of stuck for me was the one about um, they let her, they let his wife in, come along and pour out tea each day. Because I came across in the archives a Valentine's card that Eva Larkin sent to her husband while he was in Warwick Hospital while he was dying which is a very poignant one, really. It read, Dearest, something has prompted me to send you a valentine. It must have been the first I've ever bought. I hope it will please and surprise you. How are you this morning? I hope you're feeling better. And then she says, I look forward so very much to our tea party each afternoon. Mm. So there you go. You know that they were sharing that moment of togetherness in a way that people don't actually, you know, kind of assume was the case with Larkin's parents that they no. ever showed any kind of um, affection to each other. It isn't completely true. And, and that, you know, certainly at the end of things, that's what Eva was, was demonstrating herself. But it just makes sense of that, that fill, fills out that picture of, you know, him, her being let in to pour out tea each day. Mm. It gives a, a kind of image to that. And then I thought the other thing in that poem, the lines with her blithe bone mending, watched him in decay. This whole thing about, you know, what she'd got was going to get better and it was getting mm. better naturally, whereas he was dying pretty rap rapidly and they both knew that at the time, she and Philip. And um, and a kind of, I think it sets the scene for probably a lot of the mother poems as well because and probably some of the others we're going to talk about because there's very much a kind of looking back to stuff in these poems, you know, things, things dying, things... That, that were in the past that you can't get back to and, and were fading away. And that, that, that poem kind of starts the whole thing off, I suppose. Sydney doesn't feature a great deal in his poetry, does no, he? No, there was the, you know, the elegy, wasn't there? A, a, uh, an April Sunday Brings the Snow, which he wrote almost immediately after Sydney died. Um, mm. and, and you can find a few more things that he started but didn't, didn't write about. Mm. You know, Sydney features again in To the Sea, because that's a poem about his parents, but he doesn't feature clearly as much as um, as Eva does, you know. But so that that but that one is just a picture of them both, you know. And his 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 looking at looking back at the relationship they had from afar, and um, you know, I, I think it's quite a moving poem, really. Even though it's not perhaps it's one of his best, it it certainly tells us something about what was going on at the time. And also that winter, nineteen forty eight, was a terribly cold winter. Mm. And that comes through the letters when you read them from that year, you know, so you can pick up a little bit about why Eva might have slipped on the ice when she did then, because it was a dangerous year in all sorts of respects. 
And when she goes back in to finish the raffia mat, that, yes. is that a kind of like occupational health thing yeah, to check could that be. her bone had mended? I guess it could be. I mean, you know, the whole thing, tell, in a way, the whole thing is also about the institutionalisation of hospitals, isn't it? Yeah. You think about yeah. it, you know, and that whole thing about they're using that term they, they had her in, you know. It's, yeah. Um, and also I kind of found it interesting historically because I think it was around the time that the NHS was set up, wasn't it? Mm. Mm. So, you know, I don't know whether Warwick Hospital would have moved over to that yet, but it's kind of like it's capturing a historical moment. I know from the letters that Sydney had his own room, but he wouldn't have been, you know, it wasn't a private patient in that sense, but it was no. probably as a small county hospital or whatever yeah. but so you know they're the little teas I don't think he was always in a private room but he was for a while and the tea parties would have had their kind of um, private nature wouldn't they yes it's quite sort of uh, like ritualistic the poem um, you know the set ways of doing things yes um, yeah so it's concrete objects as well isn't it that make yeah. it so real so the raffia mat and the tea and the idle and the idle headphones the idle headphones you can, you yeah. can picture those hanging on the top yeah. of the bed can't you you know yeah but a lot of it is also quite monosyllabic isn't it so yeah. it was quite hard hitting so it's pour out tea each day and yes. the screen was for that and there's quite a harsh kind of finality to it i think there is it's like that line watched him in decay you know mm. you can you know what's going on from there you think well it, it, the pain of that just seeing this poor man dying very very quickly i mean what was also tragic about that ending you know fact was one of Sydney's brothers died a couple of weeks before he did and they didn't tell him because they, they thought it would be too much to take but mm. you know you can think about the agony of that kind of family context that anybody could have really you know that here are two people dealing with the fact that they know that um, Sydney's going to die because uh, Philip writes to um, Jim Sutton to say it's all up with him I think it was him either Jim Sutton or Monica, one or the other, um, say it's all up with him now, just a matter of weeks. And they couldn't tell him that his brother had died. You know, they didn't tell him that. It's, uh, yeah, so it's very poignant. Mother Samurai is one of my favourite poems, yeah. I think. Um, we've read it a few times when we've done the, the little poetry sessions in the avenues in Hull in the summer. They, the avenues where Larkin lived always has a, a little poetry reading around the various houses there in the summer. And uh, it's one of I've read there on hot summer days sometimes. It seems a long way away now. but um, And again, there's quite a lot of biography in this. Shall I read it and then we'll talk about it a little bit? Yeah. My mother, who hates thunderstorms, holds up each summer day and shakes it out suspiciously, lest swarms of great dark clouds are lurking there. But when the August weather breaks and rains begin and brittle frost sharpens the bird-abandoned air, her worried summer lock is lost. And I, her son, though summer-born and summer-loving, nonetheless am easier when the leaves are gone. Too often summer days appear emblems of perfect happiness I can't confront. I must await a time less bold, less rich, less clear, and autumn more appropriate. I mean, that just resonates with Larkin, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you can imagine that. Well, more than imagine it, because he says he talks about it elsewhere. And it, 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 there's so much biographical detail in there, I think. Um, 
mean, because we know for certain that Eva had a terrible fear of thunderstorms. Yeah. I mean, she writes about it all the time. You can't pick, and if you've read, you know, um, uh, Letters Home, you'll see lots of uh, lots of uh, references to that in yeah. their correspondence. Yeah. And it definitely affected her life. I mean, there was, if there was any hint of a thunderstorm when she lived in Loughborough and her sister, sorry, her uh, daughter lived uh, literally 100 yards up the road on the same road, York Road in York, in um, Loughborough, um, she wouldn't go out. If there was a sign there was a thunderstorm, because she normally would spend the night at, her, at her Kitty's house, but she wouldn't mm. go out of the house. Uh, she was so frightened of thunderstorms. And she was very interested in why, because she consulted psychology books. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, she went to psychology talks. She thinks it was hereditary, uh, you know, why she got here. But I found, what I thought was amusing about that is, because it clearly littered the conversation with Philip, is at one time when he was living in Belfast um, and she was really lonely because she was no one to live with and you know mm. this whole thing about how did you cope with them um, being a, a widow and so on she consulted a book showing the frequency of thunderstorms across the British Isles and found that they had far fewer in Belfast than they did in Loughborough which I think was that's a really good you know sort of hint that well if I came over and lived with you that would be great so you know the thunderstorm element is real but what I thought was interesting too was the fact, you know, Larkin talks there about I, her son, though summer born. And of course, he was mm. summer born. He's born on August the, the 9th. You know, this whole thing about why he doesn't like the summer, because um, he suffered from hay fever terribly. So again, in the letters, you find all this stuff. As soon as the sun comes out, you know, he's he's got hay fever and he's pretty mm. miserable. But mm. it kind of, with a lot of things in Larkin's life, there's, there's things which cut across that. I thought it was interesting that he talks about the fact that um, too often summer days appear emblems of perfect happiness. It's almost as if, you know, I can't let go enough to think that this is going to last. And I mm. I think that's an element that Larkin has. I think I have it sometimes as well. But I remember something I did in About Larkin last year was talking about the holidays he'd been on um, down in Dorset. And uh, I came across a postcard there, which struck me as being so different from what Larkin normally talked about and what he might have said in this poem, because he sent it, he was from Bournemouth, he was down in Bournemouth with Jim Sutton, he sent it back to his mother um, in that July 1951, and he said, it's beautiful to sit in a strong, unhindered sun, I love it, life ought to include lots of this. But then again, in the poem, you know, he recognises that you know it doesn't last forever. It's not really perfect happiness. I can't, I can't take much, too much of it. Um, I love that poem. It just it's such a nice one to read as well. I, yeah, I love that imagery of um, how she shakes out the days. Yes. Um, you know, like a a sheet on a line that might yeah. have a, a wasp on it or something like that, <laughs> looking for the thunderstorms. Exactly, and there was. There's something about words, you know, as well that I, I picked up on this one. I was, when I was saying earlier that, you know, there are certain words that Larkin likes to use, or if you know the biography, you know he's used them before. That phrase, grape dark clouds, the grape dark clouds are lurking there. It wasn't the only poem he used that phrase in. It wasn't the only time he used it ever, actually. Um, he, he used it, that poem was written in 1953, or it was completed in 1953 anyway, but... In a letter to Monica Jones in 1951, in November, I found that he'd written, At 4.30 today, the sky here was murky and windy, grape-coloured clouds like great thumb marks rolling westward. 
Mm. So it's a phrase that was in his head. It also shows that sometimes when he wrote to, to Monica, it was in a very poetical yeah. way. Well, the, the strong, the un- unhindered sun yeah, yeah. comes it's, up again in Duffy and Sun, yeah, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it's the moon. And then in Livings in 1971, he used great dark again. By day, sky builds great dark over the salt, unsown, stirring fields. So he'd used it twice. And he used it again, actually, in an unpublished poem that's in About Larkin, um, 21 written in 1962, which starts, light from the east displacing great dark sky. So it really was a phrase that he had (laughs) in his head, you know, a lot. He nearly used it again in another poem about his his parents, To the Sea, which again I'd I'd written about in About Larkin in the past, um, where he talks about um, his parents, on some Welsh speech, my parents met in the huge Edwardian lower middle class, innocent in boaters under great dark skies. So Larkin had a few phrases up his sleeve that he liked to drop in, mm-hmm. or, you know. but I, I just thought that was fascinating when I saw that, when I discovered that. I, I like in his poem, there's something about the kind of centrality of summer. You know, it's kind yeah. of like the centre of the year, it's like the height of the year, but it's the height of her fear as well yes. and it's his birthday and it's a kind of there's a separation as a divide that's that yeah. fear around summer and it's yeah. in the title isn't it that summer comes in between him and yes. his mother yes it's 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 almost as if summer summer's too much because it offers so much and it can overwhelm you mm. i mean i the other thing i wondered about there is that it looks as if it's too rich for him in a way you know there's too much sunshine you'll get hay fever there's too <laughs> many things but it reminded me a bit of lines on a young lady's photograph album in a way you know with this nutritious oh, yeah. images yeah um, you know, there's this whole thing about, oh, this richness around the sort summer Sort of attacking experience. him from all yeah. sides, isn't it? <laughs> there's also too much expectation as well. Yeah. This summer is going to be, you know, the best holiday and the best time. Yes, yes. And so that can't ever really be fulfilled. That's how I read The Perfect Happiness. Do you think that's why you went to kind of very ordinary holiday places rather than going to like Barbados? Avoid disappointment. <laughs> You're better off in the rain in Scotland. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah. yeah. But also, he says that he finds um, an autumn less, uh, an autumn more appropriate. You know, he's kind of much happier when he's thinking about things decaying and dying yeah. And, yeah. and going to the end of stuff. Well, not happy is not the right word, but it seems to kind of suit him more. He would say, I guess, but a more um, ambiguous time yeah maybe less clear well no i do like that poem an awful lot uh, yeah it's very uh it's very immediate i think and and one that i don't know you can uh just take you into this world and the, and the, the woman that hates thunderstorms it's there's almost like a kind of it's like a sort of fairy tale or something it's such an unusual condition to suffer from isn't it to be yeah. phobic of thunderstorms i would have thought anyway i can't imagine it's a very common phobia but, but then the way he uses it, you know, he would be in a very... He's, he's clearly well aware that his mother has got this huge phobia with thunderstorms. You know, it's part of his life because she's forever writing to him. You know, it might thunder. It, ne- it nearly thundered last night, whatever. Mm. But he's turned it into something else, hasn't he, with that imagery afterwards. You know, holds up each summer day and shakes it out suspiciously. You know, it's become something else then about, you know... Is there going to be thunder today? Yeah. Let's have a look at it properly. You know, let's shake it out. and It's going to come around any time now. And, you know, and it's, so, it's such a compassionate poem as well. Yeah. Because you could, 
I, I don't know how... I mean, he was quite helpless to do much about it anyway because I know he, he writes to her and suggests she has a plus a sherry and things like that and is, yes. is generally supportive of her. But, the, I mean, you, what can you practically do even if he was in the house with her? He tried his best because he also, <laughs> yeah. wrote, to, he also wrote to her and said, uh, why don't you um, keep a diary record of, you know, when you think it's going to thunder, when it when and when it does, you know, which is quite a useful little yeah. strategy to say, well, look, you thought it was going to thunder on this day, that day and the other day, and it never did, you know, but <laughs> yeah. it doesn't work. So, um, you know, so so it doesn't lend itself to, to that kind of experience. No, I don't know how you could overcome it. No. Irrationality is involved in it. It's too much irrationality involved in it, really. I suppose modern treatment would you'd be watching YouTube videos of thunderstorms and maybe she'd be going to out, outpatients again. I think actually, it's <laughs> that another kind of coping strategy. Yeah. Mm. So I don't know if we want to uh, read your poems, then, Rach. Yeah, I mean, I was going to do um, Perceptions first and then do the Winifred poems later, but I, I don't suppose it, it, would, it would hurt if I started with Winifred. I think Deceptions was the one that kind of you were thinking about particularly, weren't you, as an, a, a slightly different way of looking at this poem. Yeah, well, the thing with Deceptions is it is um, a direct address and it's quite interesting that it starts with her voice. She's the kind of ruined Victorian maid. It's kind of quite Hardy-esque. Um, I think you see his influences there. But it actually starts with a quote from um, Mayhew's London Labour and the London Poor. And it's actually the the, the woman herself. Um, and that kind of nicely frames the poem. And then he directly addresses her. But then obviously there's all sorts of things you can read into if we're talking about, um, you know, understanding uh, what's happening in Larkin's life at the time? Mm. Um, there's all sorts of um, sort of messages here. Actually, is he talking to Ruth Bowman um, rather than this Victorian um, maid who's been ruined? Um, so, shall I read the poem and then talk a little bit? About yeah, that'd be yeah. great. Yeah. Okay. So this was uh, just um, before I read it. This was written in 1950, which is the same year that he proposes to Ruth, um, and then obviously withdraws that proposal um, not long after. Of course I was drugged, and so heavily I did not regain consciousness until the next morning. I was so horrified to discover that I had been ruined, and for some days I was inconsolable, and cried like a child to be killed or sent back to my aunt. And that's Mayhew, London Labour and the London Poor. Even so distant, I can taste the grief, bitter and sharp with stalks, he made you gulp. The sun's occasional print the brisk, brief worry of wheels along the street outside, where bridal London bounds the other way, and light, unanswerable and tall and wide, forbids the scar to heal, and drives shame out of hiding. All the unhurried day, your mind lay open like a drawer of knives. Slums, years have buried you. I would not dare console you if I could. What can be said, except that suffering is exact, but where desire takes charge, readings will grow erratic. For you would hardly care that you were less deceived, out on that bed, than he was, stumbling up the breathless stair to burst into fulfilment's desolate attic. 
it's a quite a complicated address, I think, in many ways. Mm. Um, yes, he's trying in the first stanza to share this young girl's suffering, even though there's the distance of of, of so many years. I can taste the grief. Um, obviously, this woman has been raped and forced into prostitution. Very violent images uh, with the simile. Uh, the mind open like the drawer of knives, uh, famously misquoted by Thatcher. But then in the second stanza, almost sort of, again, sort of changes his mind. We've talked about before where he sort of changes his mind in, in, in his poems. And it's almost a regret, I think, that he tried to share her grief in the first stanza because now he's saying, the poetic voice is saying, I would not dare console you if I could. Now, is that because he realises that you know he's sort of innate unable to to, mm. to do that and that's just some sort of pathetic sort of male kind of compensation <laughs> or actually is this because he he actually does identify with the rapist does his uh, masculinity i think it might have been james booth that suggested that mm. maybe he's aware that his own masculinity implicates him in the guilt of the man uh, who mm. raped her but what's interesting to me is the way in which he actually, the poetic voice, is also kind of guilty of a violation because he then kind of almost bursts into that room, that memory of where the rape happened, mm. out on that bed. Again, we talked about that monosyllabic kind of yeah, yeah. forceful. Um, I think that's quite uh, an intrusion. The desire takes charge. Is that almost an excuse? Um, and again, can we see this as an extreme metaphor for the way he's treated Ruth, that he's never going to make an honest woman of her mm. in the same way this man has has violated and uh, destroyed this this young maiden's life? So it's the less deceived, he's more deceived, the rapist or, or Philip, you know, the narrator voice. Mm -hmm. So, the, you know, the whole collection, the title, The Less Deceived, is that about the victim the, the victim of terrible acts or the innocent. This is um this is a kind of play on what Ophelia says to Hamlet, isn't it? So when he says that I loved you not, she says I was the more deceived. And oh, maybe right. yeah, yeah, it might be is it motion or is it booze? So I can't remember. I think it might be booze that makes that parallel, you know, Hamlet's lost his father, says yeah. Larkin, yeah. and now teasing his kind of loved one, taunting um, you know, uh, almost taking that out on her, punishing her for mm. what's happened to him. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if he... Because the original part, the original title of this poem was The Less Deceived. Mm. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, that came to, obviously, um, be used for the whole collection. But, yeah, I think he is. He's saying it's not that much of a consolation, is it? But isn't actually the the rapist here more deceived than, than the victim? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting in terms of the time it was written, isn't it? Because ninety February nineteen fifty mm. was when it was written, I think, which would be the point where he just moved moved to um, or was going to move to Belfast. It was that period of time when he, as you say, he'd had that um, second engagement to Ruth, mm -hmm. and that kind of angst was going on. Yeah, I know. Um when uh, Graham Chesters came onto the podcast and he was talking about absences, um, he drew, you know, you, you sort of drew, drew, drew a link between the two because of the use of the attic and the kind of symbolism of attics, of this yeah. kind of um, yeah. desolate spaces um, or 
spaces of potential event. Um, yeah, quite an interesting choice of word. But you could also, I think, see this because yes, you're right. He's ready to leave, isn't he? And I think, yeah. Um, yeah, he's ready to to move on. And I think yeah. you can see this as him choosing art over marriage, choosing him his own personal, yeah, sort of future and creativity over any sort of commitment to a woman, which he sort of saw the death of creativity, didn't he? Yes. But I just think it's so unlike other poems and particularly so unlike other direct address poems it's really bleak <laughs> it is bleak isn't it it's very bleak yeah yeah it really is um the line all the unhurried day your mind lay open like a drawer of knives and i don't really feel like i understand what that means <laughs> but it's really it's frightening the violence and the pain yeah i think it's the next day the way she feels yeah yeah psychologically as well as physically attacked. Yeah. And ra- a rawness to it, mm. but with a with a violence inside it as well. And, and the unhurried, you know, that's very larking, isn't it? Yes, to have that, the unword. Um, yes. At the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it's it's like the day is 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 cruelly sort of drawn out. Her pain is mm. stretched out very casually through the you know the, the cruelty of time mm-hmm. not moving quickly enough and she's regaining her consciousness isn't she throughout that day her mind's probably drip feeding back through images of yes. sort of you know memories yes. of what actually happened to her the night before yeah until of course the moment she passes out completely and is that a contrast then with bridal london yeah because she's no hope of being a she'll never marry a bride yeah she has no hope of that now he's robbed her of that Bells the other way. Yeah, it's not interested, is it? It's it, it's a rejection. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a very startling poem. It is. Mm-hmm. And light here as well is quite brutal, isn't it? The light here isn't it a friend. It's not kindly. Yeah, unanswerable. Yeah, it's quite intrusive. A- another unword as well. Yes. Unanswerable. And when he gets up the stairs, you know, to burst into fulfilment's desolate attic, you think it's there's a kind of positive upward energy, but actually it ends in a kind of in horror. Yeah. Um, so it's just such a bleak poem. That juxtaposition, isn't it, to be fulfilled, mm. but actually the very opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah. Desolation. It's- I mean, it st- it starts bleak and it ends bleak in that sense. You know, things the sort of I can taste the grief yeah. in that opening line, quite. Yeah. Start too. Yeah, yeah. Letter to a friend about girls. Um, Larkin didn't um, particularly look for it to be published, and it was re- really what it says. It's a letter to Kingsley Amis in poetry. Uh, about their different experiences of, uh, you know, girls and uh, women, really, at this point. Although girls, actually, with Kingsley Amis um, as well. And uh, when he sent it to Kingsley Amis, uh, Kingsley kind of had this idea that maybe he could write a response back and it could be a kind of verse-like correspondence. Um, he, He didn't really kind of take it very seriously and and quite later a bit later in his life Kingsley suggested it might not have been particularly about him it might have been about Robert Conquest because 
conquest was also they had this kind of three-way correspondence about women and and their kind of affairs and sexual activity and and conquest was very uh, involved with king's amis down in london robert conquest had a, a flat that he rented out that they could use he lent it out to particularly to king's amis for his um affairs where he could go and meet his girlfriends um, behind hilly's back uh, but uh, it's clearly there's there's biographical details in here that mean it's very clearly about King Siamis and not mm, the conquest I at all. Think so. um, yeah. But uh, I think that that was quite typical of King Siamis. In uh, Larkin got quite frustrated with King Zee that he didn't really read things very clearly. Other people's work, he wasn't very interested in what other people were writing about. Um, he was a bit offhand. Um, and uh, I think it was one of the things that annoyed Larkin. Larkin would send him poems to read and he clearly wouldn't bother or he'd, he'd just say, oh, yeah, I read that and not really comment on it in any yeah. detail. And, uh, you know, Larkin got quite frustrated with him. Um, but anyway, I'll, uh, I'll read the poem. Letter to a friend about girls. After comparing lives with you for years, I see how I've been losing. All the while, I've met a different gauge of girl from yours. Grant that, and all the rest makes sense as well. My mortification at your pushovers, your mystification at my fecklessness. Everything proves we play in separate leagues. Before, I couldn't credit your intrigues because I thought all girls the same. But yes, you bag real birds, though they're from alien covers. Now I believe your staggering skirmishes in train, tutorial and telephone booth the wife whose husband watched away matches while she behaved so badly in a bath, and all the rest who beckoned from that world described on Sundays only, where to want is straightway to be wanted, seek to find, and no one gets upset or seems to mind at what you say to them or what you don't, a world where all the nonsense is annulled, and beauty is accepted slang for yes. But equally, haven't you noticed mine? They had their world, not much compared with yours, but where they work and age, put off men by being unattractive or too shy or having morals. Anyhow, none give in. Some of them go quite rigid with disgust at anything but marriage. That's all lust and so not worth considering. They begin fetching your hat so that you have to lie till everything's confused. You mine away for months, both of you the collapse comes into remorse, tears, and wondering why you ever start such boring, barren games. But there, don't mind my salve indignatio. I'm happier now I've got things clear, although it's strange we never meet each other's sort. There should be equal chances, I'd have thought. Must finish now. One day, perhaps I'll know what makes you be so lucky in your ratio. One of those more things could it be, Horatio. <laughs> yeah. So um, Kingsley wrote, wrote in quite a lot of detail in his letters to Larkin about his various sexual encounters um, and, you know, and what Larkin calls his staggering skirmishes because he, he was, you know, prodigious. He had an endless roll call of girlfriends, didn't mm, he? He did. Um, and, uh, you know, poor old Hilly... I think for a long time wasn't aware or pretended it wasn't happening um, and put a brave face on it. And I was reading in one of the books, he was at a party 
and Kingsley kept, he had a party at the house and Kingsley kept disappearing out to the garden and it turned out every time he went out he was going out with a different woman for <laughs> <laughs> 20 minutes <laughs> and then coming back wow and a, a huge drinker you know I was reading um uh, Martin Amos's book yesterday, yeah. um, and he, I didn't know that Martin and uh, Christopher Hitchens had both not actually started drinking until they were in their twenties. Even though they grew up in this hugely like bohemian sort of debauched household, and mm. I think it must have been their way of sort of um, rebelling yeah. <laughs> against mm. it um, by deliberately staying away from alcohol. Um, but uh, you know, like uh, sorry, Amos did have a girlfriend whose husband was a football manager. Oh, and they, right. they did spend Saturday afternoons in the bus <laughs> together. Because <laughs> they knew he'd definitely be at the match because oh. that was his job to be there. Um, so I think that, if, if nothing else, totally pinpoints it. Um, and, you know, the uh, train tutorial and telephone booth, uh, you know, Kingsley just was was pretty relentless and and would have sex outdoors and anywhere he could manage and he did have affairs with students you know the tutorial um was was where he would meet people um young women clearly uh being able to exploit his his fame his you know his uh you know he's good looking as well and very um loquacious and very confident um, and, you know, probably could be quite easy to be bowled over by King's Amos, I should imagine. Yeah, I don't know if there's an admiration there, though, the train tutorial and telephone. <laughs> so, literation gives it a bit of a mocking tone, I feel. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you do it anywhere, you dirty <laughs> rats, rather than a... <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, you can literally staggering at times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit of both, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, even if it, even if you we couldn't tie it down to Kingsley Amis, you could certainly tie it down to the 1950s, couldn't you? To some degree, yeah. I mean, there's something in yeah. this language and um, the 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 football analogies from that time, really. And the Sunday is described on Sundays only. You know, it's a it's a poem. You can contextualize a poem around when it was written. I think in some some respects. Yeah, yeah. and um, it's a world of uh, where we're getting into the kind of swimming swing, swinging 60s and, yeah. and women having much more power and much more of a voice and yes. you know Larkin and Amos are kind of in the middle of all that aren't they because there's still a, a very wide attitude as well that that um well that's not a very moralistic way to behave mm. and actually Larkin seems to have a mixed attitude towards women that he's he's attracted to or he has relationships with because obviously Mon- monica was uh she could have been part of that party world as well she was very beautiful she was very glamorous but kings the amis didn't like her at all did he no no but then he didn't like ruth either no. When he met Ruth, and I think I think probably she might well have been a bit intimidated by him as well in that yeah. sense. But like you know, the thing about that could also be that you know Amos didn't want anyone else to be. Yeah, uh, he wanted to keep Larkin to himself in a sense, yeah. as if as his, as his best friend or whatever, didn't he? I mean, there was a jealousy element of a different kind there. I think. Yeah, um, I think so. And um, you read about how Amos really looked forward to getting his letters from Larkin all through his life. Yeah. absolutely treasured his friendship and um was was sad when letters stopped coming um but he didn't have much self 
analysis as to understand why he perhaps had upset Larkin in the no. way that he spoke to him and was, yeah, in the way he behaved. Well, you were saying before, weren't you, that Ames is quite needy, really. Mm. So yeah. in that way, yeah, it yeah. was, a, I think, a, a wanting to keep Larkin to himself. Mm. But I probably would have been intimidated by Monica's power and her yeah. not wanting to impress anyone. She wouldn't have tried to impress him. No, but I think doesn't Martin I aim is right at some point, and I think it's reflected in that in 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 his in his new book, semi novelistic book, that uh, there was a there was some dinner party that Monica attended with Philip Larkin, and he was there too, and she was very loud, mm, and mm. and you could you know the silly was that the loud side of Monica too that again might have com- competed with Kingsley Amis in some respects yeah. about who is you know who is the who is the person who's um, you know in charge here or or is um, on display in this in this setting the alpha male <laughs> the alpha yeah. male who's the alpha yeah. male yeah. Yeah. and then uh, and once Larkin realised that Amis wasn't really much help in reading proofreading his poems or mm. helping him with his poetry then Monica became the person mm. he went to more yeah. wasn't she um, and so you know Amis could have could have had more involvement with that, perhaps, but he just... Well, he didn't know Larkin in a way, does he? I mean, he said famously, no. and coming back from Larkin's funeral, that he never never really knew him, and that's, he said something mm. like that. Well, if you look at Larkin's letters to Amos, they don't bear their soul in the way that, you know, for example, he wrote to other people. Um, you know, it was a it was a particular dialogue, wasn't it, that yeah. Larkin Lamis had, which is all about keeping up that particular persona that they had at, yeah. at Oxford and carried on from yeah. there. Really, so he didn't yeah. he didn't show Larkin didn't show Amis the full, you know, embodiment of himself in that way. No. And the things that bothered him, no. he said, obviously, many things he did, but not not every part of him was there. I don't think Larkin showed anyone every part of him, though. Well, no, he didn't. No, in that sense, he didn't. He was compartmentalised. Different aspects to different people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 you can argue that's what would have made him such a wonderful friend because he, he tried to give you the bit of himself that he, he thought you wanted. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. You know? Um, but uh, I, I liked looking at this poem alongside Born Yesterday, which he wrote for... Mm. Um, Sally Amos, yeah. because again, it's it's that same. Um, there's the same theme of what kind of woman should you be as a woman? What should you aspire to be? What kind of woman do you aspire to be? And uh, with uh, Sally Amos, he says, you know, I hope you become a skilled, fledgling, uh, vigilant, flexible, unemphasized, and. Um, he, you know, when he sent that to Kingsley Amos, Kingsley was was very moved to receive it. Um, you know, and Hilly as well was was very moved. And they, you know, saying that they didn't really know him very well, they both kind of really um, they loved him, didn't they? They both Hilly and uh, Kingsley really loved yeah. Larkin, and and uh, Hilly confided in Larkin yeah. uh, at times when she was kind of upset. Um, there are some very touching. Letters from Hilly Amis to Larkin in the History Centre, actually, a correspondence she wrote to him, particularly, I think, when when they were in America, when uh, Amis went on that um, sabbatical to America. Um, some point she was writing home to Larkin, and it was clear that she had a lot of affection f- for him. Oh, yeah. I was just going to read the uh, letter from um, Kingsley Amis that he wrote to Larkin um, in January 1954. Um He said, I suppose I can take it now that the period of getting a letter from you by every post is over. More's the pity. 
Sodding good and touching was the poem. <laughs> That's born yesterday. Moving me a great deal as poem and as friendship assertion. I think it's about the nicest thing anyone could do for any newborn child. And I only wish I had the, I'm not sure what this, it's CHN, because he writes things like a bit, uh, he spells things strangely, doesn't he? Um, and phonetically, so I don't mm. quite know what it is. FKN, I suppose, fucking, but I don't know. Um, chance to do something comparable for you, even though I'm pretty sure I should fail the test. Hillary is, uh, Hilly is answering for herself and should have plenty to say. But yeah, the chance to do something comparable for you. <laughs> writing, <laughs> Kinsey Amos writing a poem for Philip Larkin's newborn child is a bit of an <laughs> interesting counter history. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Never happened. Um, and of course, Sally went on to, to really, really terrible early tragic deaths. End. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, really tragic end. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, interesting. And, and uh, obviously I've been a bit immersed in the world of Kings the Amos because mm. we'll, we'll be having uh, Zachary Leader on uh, the podcast, uh, our next podcast. So Great. I'm really, really looking forward to mm. that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's very interesting. I think the more I learn about Kings the Amos, the more I learn about Philip Larkin, in a different side of Philip Larkin. Mm. So, yeah, I've enjoyed it. Can I just say something about why I think it's good you've chosen these two poems as well? Yeah. This idea that there's different categories of women, yeah, um, which maybe there's not the same in terms of different types of men. I don't think he sees, it's almost like he's t- towards the end, he's talking about there should be equal chances. Why do you meet those women and I don't? Yeah. Yeah. Why aren't you looking at my world of the women that yeah. I meet? Um, yeah. so I think that's quite interesting. So, yeah, I mean, Born Yesterday, he doesn't want her to have anything extreme about her because mm. he realises that's going to pull her off her balance and not have a kind of steady, happy life. That anything unusual, like being too beautiful or, um, you know, being too talented at something is almost a, a bad thing if you're a woman. Mm. That's going to lead mm. to a life of unhappiness. Mm. Um but for but that's not there, you know, necessarily for a man. And then in the letter to a friend about girls, the you bag real birds. <laughs> yeah. Real birds. Real and then birds. there's there's inferior women. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's uh that's really interesting. Because when yeah. he talks about haven't you noticed mine by being unattractive, is he talking about Reese or too shy or having morals? I mean, could that yeah. be Maeve at that point? <sighs> Yeah, so really, he will have just met me. Yeah, yeah. 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 And she's not going to be bowled over in the way that Kingsley Amos can just easily take, yeah, a different woman outside every 20 minutes. Yeah. Because actually, (laughs) the women in his world are a different category of women. And they're not necessarily as um, easy to win over. He uses with pushovers, doesn't he? In Stand to One. You know, when we were talking about um, phrases that. he sometimes comes back to when and when he says in letters to a friend about girls um i'm happier now i've got things clear um it reminds me of wild oats you know mm. and there's a bit of humor in there but just you know yeah. useful to get that learned and just now i've got things sorted yeah. out in my head yeah yeah because <laughs> he hasn't really i'm sure yeah you still to get that learned yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I was thinking about wild oats when you were reading that uh, i think because you know there's that other contrast about 
there's sort of different images of women in that one, aren't there, as well? Mm. You know, the bosomy English Rose and her yeah. friend in Specs that I could talk to. Well, yeah, that, that has a biographical women. element as well yes. to it, doesn't it? Obviously, yeah. with Ruth and her, and, 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 her fr- and her friend, whose name I've just escaped me, but... Um, that Larkin was um, pursuing by letter to some degree and not successfully at the time when he was, that he knew Ruth or knew Ruth through her or whatever. Oh, what yeah. name now? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Bosomy English Rose. There's a, there's a kind of contrast then in terms of, you know, the sort of girls that Larkin, that a- Amos went out with and Larkin didn't, is, the, yeah. is the, I suppose, the com- But there should be equal chances, you know. Why, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what makes you so lucky in your ratio? Yeah, yes, you know, yeah. That competition <laughs> yeah. is, is, is stark, isn't it? It's not because they're in different... Well, he said we play in different leagues, but I don't think there's any sort of recognition that that's because he they're in different leagues as men. I exactly. don't know. yeah. They're just playing different leagues when it comes to which woman they're likely yeah. to get. Jane Exor was the uh, wasn't the English one, oh, so yeah. I just remember yeah. now. The one he carried a photograph around. The one he carried a photograph in his wallet around, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because he talks about her being in furs, doesn't he? So yes. sort of that kind of erotic image. And when um, yes. I'm going to look at lines on a young lady's photograph album, of course, there, Winifred is your third. Yeah, yes. Third yeah. yourself. Third yourself, so, yeah. I don't know if that's a... There's a, kind of another Hamlet reference, isn't there? And then we talked about the Hamlet reference in Deceptions. With Horatio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Final line. So, yeah, I don't really associate Larkin with kind of musing on Hamlet very much. I don't know, he didn't, he didn't go to see a lot of Shakespeare or anything like that, did he? He did. Well, he did, did certainly. He? When, at the time when he was growing up, in his adolescent years, because they lived in Warwick, yeah. they were always going to Stratford in the summer. Because a lot mm-hmm. of the letters refer to the fact that, you know, either he went with his parents or when he was home, or while he was at Oxford, then they'd be write, he'd writing back and saying, you know, I hope you enjoyed Othello or whatever it happened to be that mm-hmm. year. Um, so I suspect he did see he did see quite a lot of Shakespeare um, in those years. It would have been, um, yeah, just it would have been imbued like, like we all are, you know, <laughs> if you're in the literary world, yeah. you're kind of like suffused in Shakespeare, but... Um, and he mentions going to see Henry V, you know, the Olivier film sometime mm. in the 50s, I think. Um, so, yeah, he was pretty imbued with Shakespeare. So does he see Kingsley Amos as a Hamlet-type character <laughs> that uh, burns a bit too bright and uh, burns himself out at the end with his uh, much calmer best friend just watching yeah. over him? <laughs> but you said the best man's left standing <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, last right. man standing last yeah standing. yeah so um so if you Rachel if you're gonna have a look at um two other poems that are about women as well it's linked yeah. quite well look at how well used my copy of three is it's in two bits now. <laughs> I need to find another one in the second hand shop somewhere after lockdown uh-huh. I'm still using my my collective poems like the the Things are written. Oh, wow. yeah, that's got, pretty good. You know, too. when it first came out. Um, yeah, yeah, I got between different copies. Um, I've got this that I nicked from a library a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> They're my copy of The Less Deceived. Larkin would not have approved of you. Well, someone maybe nicked it from a library for me because I don't think I've ever been to Books County Library. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're following Larkin's footsteps because he did nick a book from the library, didn't he? In Oxford, yeah, I think. he did, yeah. And then, of course, the fa- the famous green, the the, the Whitsun. Yeah, Although, obviously, fun. I'm not referring to that today. But, yeah. yeah. 
that gets battered about a lot. Yeah, actually, I really, I, I really like just having them all in one place. So the arch yeah, I do. Yeah, is useful. You see all the different bookmarks in it. Especially as I've now found an on- online PDF version of Burnet, so that you can do a search on it, which is Ooh, really useful. Nice. Oh, I didn't know that. So you can do a real search around stuff in there, which is cool. helpful. So yeah, um, moving from um, Amos and there's this idea of different women and um, the male gaze, I think is the is the the term that I'm I'm thinking of here. Uh, but also again, another direct address poem. So we're now talking um, 1953. So um, Larkin met Winifred Arnott whilst he was a librarian um, in Belfast. And um, so I'll read the poem and then um, have a, a look at what's interesting about it. So lines on a young lady's photograph album. At last you yielded up the album, which once opened sent me distracted. All your ages matte and glossy on the thick black pages. Too much confectionery, too rich. I choke on such nutritious images. My swivel eye hungers from pose to pose in pigtails, clutching a reluctant cat or furred yourself a sweet girl graduate, or lifting a heavy-headed rose beneath a trellis, or in a trilby hat, faintly disturbing that in several ways. From every side you strike at my control, not least though these disquieting chaps who loll at ease about your earlier days, <laughs> not quite your class, I'd say, dear, on the whole. But oh, photography, as no art is, faithful and disappointing, that records dull days as dull and hold its smiles as frauds and will not censor blemishes like washing lines and Paul's distemper boards, but shows a cat as disinclined and shades a chin as doubled when it is. What grace your candour thus confers upon her face, how overwhelmingly persuades that this is a real girl in a real place, in every sense empirically true. Or is it just the past? Those flowers, that gate, these misty parks and motors lacerate simply by being you. You contract my heart by looking out of date. Yes, true. But in the end, surely we cry not only at exclusion, but because it leaves us free to cry. We know what was won't call on us to justify our grief, however hard we yowl across the gap from eye to page. So I am left to mourn without a chance of consequence. You balanced on a bike against a fence, to wonder if you'd spot the theft of this one of you bathing. To condense, in short, a past that no one now can share, no matter who's your future. Calm and dry, it holds you like heaven, and you lie invariably lovely there, smaller and clearer as the years go by. Wonderful. Brilliant poem. Yeah. Such a great poem. <laughs> Such a great poem. Um, so, yeah, the first thing I think is quite interesting is, again, we talk about, um, when I talk about deceptions being addressed to the Victorian maid, well, actually, is this really addressed to Ruth? I think here, yes, he's addressing Winifred Arna, but actually, she's not there anymore. That's not her. So you could say he's actually addressing the photograph. It's mm. actually yeah, it's the photograph album who's the the sort of implied listener here rather mm. than Winifred herself, um, mm. and it's interesting that she yields not her body <laughs> um, as maybe Kingsley Amos's women do, but she yields <laughs> the album. You know that's the most yeah. he's going to kind of get. 
um, of her because certainly they didn't sleep together. No. Uh, we know that because Winifred said, we never went to bed together, but I think he liked me because I was cheerful. A lot of people he knew weren't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant. So, yeah, they didn't yeah. sleep together. But anyway, what he's got his second best here. And it's the way that the album affects him, which I think is really interesting. He's distracted, chokes, it strikes at him, it lacerates, it contracts his heart, it makes him yowl. I mean, this yeah. physical kind of, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yowl, uh, yowl is a definite yowl. marking word, isn't it? Yeah. That is marking word onomatopoeic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I think that's that's why I think it's maybe more addressed to the album than it is to, to her, all these different um, images. And also, I don't think he paints himself in a very positive light. If we think about him identifying maybe with the rapist in Deceptions, here he really paints himself as a as a predator. You know, we talked about his swivel eye, hungry. <laughs> it's really quite um, sinister. Um, and again, this idea of her in pigtails, mm. slightly dubious. Maybe she's younger there. And third, you've got that yeah. sexual image, which we've already connected to um to wild oats and also this idea that women are in some way some sort of sweet commodity um like we talked about before but also if we think of um study of reading habits he talks about the women being meringues yeah i mm. broke them up like meringues mm. yeah so yeah this idea that women are something to be uh, to be consumed or that you can actually overindulge upon yeah um but actually, as we go on, it's not so much the loss of her. Again, it's the passage of time, isn't it? I think loss connects all of these. Very much so, yeah. It's like the, like the mother poems, isn't it, in that sense? You know, looking yeah. back at things that have gone, can't come yeah. back. You'll yeah, never get them back, back in the same way. No. Yeah. Um, and it's that um, ambiguity about photo photography, isn't it, and, mm -hmm. and how real photographs are. Yeah. And obviously Larkin is a photographer. Yeah, yeah you know, reflecting on um, how powerful photographs can be, and yet they're still and, and posed and, and sterile and distant, mm -hmm. um, but they still could be powerful. Yeah. But they also um, manipulate our memories, so we yeah. don't necessarily remember the whole person, as I'm sure Larkin wouldn't have remembered Winifred as the years go by. He does remember her. It's a juxtaposition at the end, of, isn't he? He does remember her clearer, but only because he remembers fewer things about her. Yeah. So that's it since she is smaller because he doesn't remember her as a whole person. I mean, there was a gap of time when he didn't have any, anything to do with her. I mean, think about that. You know, he, he then he, they met up again in Oxford, you know, much later in life. But, I mean, yeah. Winifred, Winifred was a great um, supporter of the Larkin Society, you know, and she was a member of the Larkin Society. But she'd always come up to the AGMs and often mm. she'd bring the album. Oh, wow. she, she brought funny. the album. I've got a photograph somewhere of her holding the album. Oh. It's, a it's much smaller than you might imagine. Um, you know, and there are those photographs. You know, there's, there is the gra sweet girl graduate, which is from Tennyson, that that phrase, I think, from somewhere. Oh, right. Okay. Um, not a Chilby hat, though. He made that up. He made there's that up, one, yeah. There's not one of in, in <laughs> a Chilby hat. You know, it's interesting you, you, you kind of read Ruth into that because the other fascinating thing about Ruth and Winifred is they became great friends mm -hmm. in later life because they lived close to each other, very close to each other, became tremendous friends and actually so did Maeve. So the three of them within the Larkin Society in particular all became mm. friends. And there's a, there was a wonderful article in About Larkin somewhere that um, I think Maeve put together 
which is an interview with um, Winifred, you know, and about mm. and 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 I think maybe it was all three of them. If I, I can't remember now, but they sort of they think they say, "What do you think he would have made of us all getting together <laughs> afterwards?" With some kind of psychological thing going on, you know, would yeah. he have hated it? Would he have been amused? How would he have made it? You know, Aww. but it's interesting. You can read you know, someone else into this poem other than, you know, the, the, the person whose album it was, as it were. Yeah. I mean, he did, um, he did, we need to tell a friend if we're talking about uh, this idea of being a sort of almost sexual predator. I'm sure he's he wrote to a friend that he wanted to fall on her like a lion on its daily yes. hunk of horse flesh. Yeah. <laughs> Great. And he writes to his mother about something, you know, when he, from Belfast about he talk, He wrote to his mother about all of the women in his life, but he writes to her uh, about uh, Winifred and saying that she just got engaged. And he says something about just as I was about to pounce on her, mm. or put my paw <laughs> on her. So there was this imagery going around in his head about how he saw her in that respect, what he might do. A bit, a bit unnerving. Yeah. But then in other correspondences, doesn't he say something about her likeness to Stan Laurel? <laughs> Does he? <laughs> he's trying to, yeah, trying to make himself feel better about the fact that she was so unattainable. Oh. And she she does admit that he got the double chin right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, oh, yeah, so there's no oh, trilby hat. On the other hand, there's definitely my double chin. He got that right. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And there's one of me bathing, yes. The one he tries to steal. And is there a cat? Yes, apparently so. I yeah. like the cat. It get, comes in twice. It does. You get, he yeah. must like. He must have liked that picture quite yeah, a lot. Yeah, I guess because yeah. that's the truth, isn't it? That cat is. A, yeah. That cat is uh, reluctant. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and again, those concrete objects. I just love it. You know, you've got yes. the flowers, the motor. Right. You've got the horse distemper boards. Yeah. Washing lines. Yeah. I love it, that concrete kind of... I think that's probably also, you know, why when that, that great exhibition in 2017 in Hull, um, the Larkin exhibition, New Eyes Each Year, which was made up of objects, you know, because ob- objects were so significant in Larkin's life in that way because they, yeah. they appear in the poem, you know, that vase... And so we didn't yeah. have that vase, but we had a vase there. And, and you know, all the other things that sort of find their way into Larkin's poems as objects, as you say. Yeah, well, that's why we've been thinking about trying to do something with all those lovely photographs of the Larkinalia. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we hope to sort of bring them more back out into the public for people yeah. to enjoy because um, they are they are beautiful. I mean, that, that uh, the tweet, uh, I don't know if it was you or Graham put on, of Larkin's pencils. Great, um, yeah. yeah, it got really amazing response. Yeah. People like to see things like that. And I, I love the postcards, you know, with the washing line that's on there, actually, you know, the, yeah. the photograph of the, the hedgehog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The washing line. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you don't get that kind of language in, um, like, Ted Hughes or something, do you? And I think that's one of the things that makes uh, Larkin um, very readable for people because you, he... He looks through the window at the world that we all see, mm-hmm. the parks and the gardens and the, you yeah. know, the shops and the libraries and yeah, yeah. the vases. Yeah, always vases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, do you want me to go on to um, my maiden name? We've been talking about Winifred. Yeah. Uh, maiden yeah. name. Yeah. And then that's that'll be me, don't mind. Yeah, should we round off with maiden name? Because I, I think I really like the way all the poems have interlinked really nicely as well, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's round off with that then. 
So maiden name, uh, a couple of years later, so we're talking 1955, uh, again, directly addressed um, to her. Um, and this time, um, it's her name um, which preserves her uh, as she was, uh, rather than the photographs in the album. So um, I'll, I'll read it through and then we can uh, have a chat about it. Maiden name. Marrying left your maiden name disused. Its five light sounds no longer mean your face, your voice, and all your variants of grace. For since you were so thankfully confused by law with someone else, you cannot be semantically the same as that young beauty. It was of her that these two words were used. Now, it's just a phrase applicable to no one, lying just where you left it, scattered through old lists, old programmes, a school prize or two, packets of letters tied with tartan ribbon. Then, is it scentless, weightless, strengthless, wholly untruthful? Try whispering it slowly. No, it means you. Or, since you're past and gone, it means what we feel now about you then. How beautiful you were, near and young, so vivid. You might still be there among those first few days, unfingermarked again. So your old name shelters our faithfulness. Instead of losing shape and meaningless with your depreciated, depreciating luggage laden. So, yeah, the five light syllables obviously win their thread, are not. Um, I quite like the point where he asks, he directly asks her to try saying those words almost to see, you know, how she feels about using them. No, they mean you. Mm. Um, mm. But quite interesting, there's a switch. Um, at the end of the first stanza, no, it was her that these two words. He suddenly switches to the third person, mm. maybe because he recognises that actually that Winifred doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, she's she's gone. Mm. And of course, his uh, general dismissive um, attitude towards marriage comes in very <laughs> strongly here. Been thankfully confused by law. It's such a brilliant definition of marriage. It is. It's so funny um, and true. And I think, yeah, it highlights Larkin's fear that marriage means owning mm. or being owned mm. by someone else. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, humour, mocking. He deals with all the sort of serious, <laughs> serious issues in this way. I think when he says try whispering it slowly, it's quite sensual, isn't yes. it? Yeah. It's also quite cha a challenge. Try whispering it. Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's an imperative, isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's for wanting her to say her maiden name, wanting her to be... Yeah. Winifred Arnold still. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's also, there's a kind of sexual element in this as well, isn't there, around, you know, this, what she's now changed to through marriage and so on, this, the use of the word unfingermarked. Yeah. I thought it's quite yeah. those first few days un so vivid you might still be there among those first few days unfinger marked again. Yeah. It's like you know she's been taken and so on. Yeah, yeah. Because I thought of the photographs there as well being poured. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. See, it, yeah, it's similar, isn't it? Overlap with the the way that he looked at the photograph album in that in that way. Yeah, definitely. And that idea that marriage is it diminishes someone and it diminishes yeah. her here um, as he feared it would diminish him. There's definitely a, a loss. And again, that passage of time, a past that no one now can share sure. yeah. uh, that we've looked at. 
And I think also it's quite interesting that the rhyme scheme here is so regular. So it's A, B, B, A, C, C, A, all the way through. Mm. And again, that kind of regular uh, mundanity of kind of marriage and life. And yeah. Repetitive. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because in something like Toads, where he, where he uses a lot of half rhymes, it's much more anarchic, isn't it? And much kind of wilder. But this does seem, yeah... Mm-hmm. I like that idea that the the rhyme the regular rhyme scheme has a more constrained kind of area of thought, doesn't it? It's yeah. looking at one thing. Yeah. He reads this poem beautifully. I think in the Sunday Sessions uh, CD, because um, he, he was great at reading his own poems, mm. I think. And you know, it's yeah. a pity he didn't. You know, he ever he didn't like to. He didn't like to give poetry readings and so on, didn't he? But, you know, if you listen to... I can, I can still hear this poem in his voice from there. It's um, such a good last line as well. Depreciating luggage laden. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's so... Yeah. Such a burden. It's so heavy and constricting. I'm pretty sure this is why I've never got married, you know. <laughs> 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 this and afternoons, um, yeah scared the hell out of me when I read it when I was 17. Yeah. But it's quite nostalgic, isn't it, at the same time as well? Again, that idea that he's looking back at someone who just doesn't exist anymore. Mm. She only exists in lists and programmes and letters and that's never to be revisited. And and that marriage today it doesn't have that power in society that it did in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And the, the maiden name, I mean, you know, I, I'm quite typical of people today that I remarried, but I retained my first married name. Yeah. And I don't want to go back to my maiden name because it, it reminds me of being a kid and, you know, my dad and things like that. I didn't want to go back to being more, um, you know, and stay being Lockwood. Uh, but that sort of thing people didn't really do in the 1950s, did they? So, nice, that's true. Yeah. I mean, actually, going back to those lines, old old lists, old programmes, a school prize or two, packets of letters tied with tartan ribbon, there is a reality to that. Yeah. Um, when when Winifred died, um, after Winifred died, um, some of some of her materials were deposited in the whole history centre. I don't think they've been catalogued yet, but I had mm. a look at we had a look at them when they first came in, and there are packets of letters. I'm not sure if they were tied with tartan ribbon, mm. but they weren't from Larkin. They were from other admirers before. <laughs> She married, you know, so the reality of having all of that stuff with your old name on, she kept them all, um, as people do and did. Mm. I've got love letters in a box in the attic <laughs> from old boyfriends. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Why not? Yeah, I've got, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of old letters. I haven't kept any old boyfriend letters. They all <laughs> went <but> eventually. <laughs> and again, you could say, is this, I think he was quite, relieved in some ways when she left his life because again that meant he could choose his art and he could choose his you know status of being single and actually mm. the, the threat of marriage um you know being captured wasn't wasn't there but at the moment she was in his life i mean he, he monica was also in his life over mm. in england patsy strang was in his life over in belfast yeah so he had and his mother was in his life over in england as well so he had quite a, a complicated yeah i mean larkin always said he didn't write love poems you know but would you say this was a love poem really in the end 
I think if it is, it's a bitter one, isn't it? To some degree, there's a. Mm. I don't know how you. How would Winifred feel about getting this at the point of her marriage or just afterwards? It. Yeah, I think it's more of a critique of of marriage and uh, a, a, a mourning of the passing of time. Uh, he's mourning her youth, the passing of her youth, mm. rather mm. than mm. any sort of relationship he could have had with her. I think. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that he doesn't really write a love poem to Monica. If if we can consider this a poem. If those poems are for, um, you know, these are for Winifred, and, and we think about maybe not a love poem as such, but a bit about Ruth. I mean, apart from Show Saturday, is there anything really that could be seen as being for Monica? I mean, I know this collection is dedicated to her, but I'm pretty sure that's because mm. she strong armed him into it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the less deceived to Monica Jones, but I'm pretty sure that wasn't his. Uh, his own decision, mm. but I don't think that I don't think there are any poems for Monica, are there? Talking in bed, and maybe not nothing that's quite as direct no. as some of the other poems. Mm. It's more likely in the other poems there might you might you might read into some some degree partly because he was sharing that experience with. Her. I was just thinking about an Arundel an Arundel tomb to some degree because mm. you know he and Monica were together when they went to Chichester Cathedral and saw the tomb but it's not addressed at her in to no. her in any way is it and there's not details no yeah. and and those final lines were actually on are on Maeve's gravestone they're not on Monica's right yes and he didn't write them for Maeve no but then something like broadcast, he did definitely. But broadcast, he did. About yeah. Yeah. yeah, so this is what I mean. Yeah. There's broadcast for Maeve and there's maiden name and yeah. um, photograph album for Winifred. But where, where's Monica's? <laughs> and there's a poem about Oxford, uh, which is about the fact that they both went to Oxford but didn't know each other there. Mm-hmm. And he dedicates that to her. So it's like, it's not about her. As such, but you know, city we shared without knowing in blacked out and butterless days till we left and were glad to be going. But yeah, it's not a love poem to Monica, no, as such. but again, that's an absence of the time he didn't know her in the same way that absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. lines yeah. on the young lady's photograph are. Well, yeah, it's him missing out, isn't it? It's him feeling like he's not in the moment, yeah. So that was until about, that was written in about 1970. I think, yeah, just reflecting on the fact that Oxford's changed, the Oxford that they knew has disappeared now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose just marking the fact that they were both there at the same time, but strangely didn't, they didn't meet, did they? No. And they didn't know each other at Oxford. No. But she didn't really go out. She didn't really socialise from what I've read. She wasn't sort of in any kind of, you know, sort of group or movement or... Yeah. I was just looking at... Um... What James Booth wrote about um, poems to Monica Jones in um, uh, the poet's plight, where he, he he distinguishes between different types of poems aimed at different women, mm. and the ones that he he calls um, poems that were written for quote my wife, as if Monica Jones was the wifely figure, and he he suggests if my darling talking in bed that we yeah. talked about scratch on the scratch pad poem pad poems about poem about our, uh, Oxford. And the little lives of earth and form. Now that 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 rabbit poem, isn't it? The the oh, rabbit yes. poem. Mm. But it's he's not writing about her in the same way he's, that he, he's writing about Ivan Maeve or Betty, for that matter. Mm. 
Because there's some very tender poems, love poems written about Betty, aren't there? Yeah. Which is quite interesting. Yeah, if we had time, we could look at those. <laughs> yeah, we could, yeah, the way it's going. We could. Yeah, I know. That could be a whole, well, that could have been a whole podcast yeah. focus anyway with the women yeah, uh, in his life. Thank you so much to Phil and Rachel for coming along. I really enjoyed recording this. If you'd like to know more about Kingsley Amis, then April's podcast has the wonderful Zachary Leader as our guest. Zach edited the magnificent letters of Kingsley Amis and also wrote Amis's biography. And he's got lots of fascinating insights into the friendship between Amis and Larkin. I'd like to say thank you to some of our new Twitter followers, Miles Leeson, Wright in the Schoolies podcast, Jack at Camusian47, who's apparently a literary dilettante, Rose Ran, and Grim Art, the Grim Art Group. Um, the Grim Art Group present themselves in this way. They bring to us the beauty and value of the everyday, the ordinary and the overlooked industrial landscapes, whippets and wastelands, red brick and rust. That's from their uh, Twitter bio, and they are lovely, very Larkin-esque, so hello, Grim Art. This podcast is produced by Simon Galloway, and the theme music is The Horns of the Morning by The Mechanicals Band. Please support this podcast by retweeting, leaving reviews, uh, or even taking out a membership of the Philip Larkin Society. It's all very much appreciated. I have been ending the podcast this year with a track from The Righteous Jazz by The Mechanicals Band, and today I will leave you with their setting of a poem that in some ways is addressed to all of us, Mr Blini. at the bodies till they moved him flowered curtains thin and frayed fall to within five inches of the sill whose window shows a strip of building land tussocky littered Mr. Blini took my bit of garden properly in hand. Bed, upright chair, 60 watt ball, no hook behind the door, no room for books or bags. Take it. So it happens that I lie where Mr. Blini lay 
and stub my fags on the same saucer of souvenir and try stuffing my ears with cotton wool to drown the jabbering set he egged her on to buy. I know his habits, what time he came down. His preference for sauce to gravy. Why he kept plugging at the fouraways. Likewise their yearly frame, the Frinton folk who put him up for summer holidays. And Christmas at his sister's house in Stoke. But if he stood and watched the frigid wind tussling the clouds, lay on the fusty bed, telling himself that this was home, and grinned and shivered without shaking off the dread that how we live measures our own nature and at his age having no more to show than one hired box should make him pretty sure he warranted no better I don't know <laughs>